uh, we try to do this in the Chinese service, but because this logistics, um, this will have to suffice. The Chinese pastoral staff will have theirs, so don't tell anybody. Okay. Uh, please rise uh, in honor of reading of God's word. It is going to come out of the uh, book of Exodus, chapter 11, verses 4 through chapter 12, verse 13. In the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 53. Again, Exodus chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Aaron and Moses in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year male old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more.
Lord, we're so thankful, we're so grateful for your word that you speak to us and that you long to communicate with those that you have created in your own image. And now as we seek to study your word, study this particular text, we ask for your spirit's guidance and help. We pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. When I conduct premarital counseling, one of the questions that I do like to ask during the session that's on parents and in-laws is for the couple to describe for me the first time they visited their future in-law's home and shared with that family a family meal. Because that meal can tell you a whole lot about that family. We talk about what's served for dinner because, of course, food itself is a huge transmitter of tradition and culture. But I also get them to think about how that table conversation is carried. What do you talk about? Who does most of the talking? Are there traditions like waiting for everyone to sit down before you eat, praying before the meal, maybe even holding hands as you pray? Are there policies like no phones at the table or uh, no other distractions like a TV playing in the background? And how frequent are these kinds of meals where everyone in the family is sitting down and sharing it together? And in addition to family meals, I also try to hone in on any ritual meals that are cherished and valued by their family. I'm talking about meals that carry a lot of meaning and tradition and that they're repeated and they're preserved by the family. These could be meals to celebrate birthdays or anniversaries. These could be meals associated with cherished holidays like Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year. These ritual meals, they're important. They are an important means of keeping family members connected with a shared tradition and making sure that that tradition is passed down from generation to generation. Ritual meals, they're special. They have this way of connecting you to other people, even people that you don't even personally know from generations past. By partaking in a ritual meal, you are suddenly connected with others through a shared tradition, through really a shared story. And this is why, if you think about it, sitting down for a traditional Thanksgiving meal in 2018 is going to bring you closer to a family celebrating Thanksgiving in 1918. Much closer than a family meal from last Tuesday. Ritual meals are special in that way. They have an ability to draw you into a tradition to draw you into a story that's much bigger than you and much bigger than your family. Well, friends, this morning in our passage, it's all about one of those ritual meals. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and this morning we're going to cover another larger section. We're going to look at the entire chapter 11, chapter 12, and we're actually going to go into 13 all the way up to verse 16. We're not going to be able to cover all the details, but I'm going to give you a, a, a bigger sweep of these chapters. And really all of this text centers on the 10th and final plague and the ritual meal that we know as the Passover, as well as the accompanying feast of the unleavened bread. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how these 10 plagues function within the Exodus, not just as punishments against Egypt, but as proofs, as signs 
that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, is truly the God of all creation. And by arranging for the exodus of his people from slavery to play out exactly the way it did with multiple signs and wonders, with all these great acts of judgment, the Lord was making a name for himself among his people and among all the nations of the earth. You shall know that I am Yahweh. You shall know that I am the Lord. That has been a continual refrain throughout the book and saving his people, and judging his enemies, God is exalting his name. He is glorifying himself in salvation through judgment. So now in chapter 11, we arrive at a very somber moment. Here God warns of his final plague directed against Egypt, and he prepares his people for how they could survive it. And he also explains how they can pass on through a ritual meal, this grand story of how he rescued his people. So I've divided this uh, message up into three parts as we consider this ritual meal known as the Passover. If you want to follow along, you can see an outline in your bulletin. And the three parts are like, go like this. First, we're going to consider the background of the Passover. Second, the significance of the Passover. And third, the remembrance of the Passover. So let's begin with the background of this meal. If we could sum it up in, in a few words, the background to the Passover is the approach of death. That's the background, the approach of death. In chapter 11, God sends a final warning to Pharaoh that an encroaching death will literally be at your doorstep by midnight that night. If you look at, at chapter uh, 11, the confrontation uh, that Moses has with Pharaoh is interrupted in the very beginning of chapter 11 by verses 1 to 3. So 1 to 3 is more of an aside here where God explains that he's going to give the Israelites and Moses great favor in the eyes of their Egyptian neighbors to the point that when they go, the Egyptians will be giving them voluntarily all of their gold and silver just to get them out of their land. And so uh, the speech that Moses had began earlier in chapter 10, verse 29 picks right up in chapter 11, verse 4. And so look at verse 4. So Moses says, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle." Take note of a few observations with me. First, notice how in this final plague, God is not utilizing secondary causes like a staff or a strong east wind like he did in the other plagues. This time, it's very clear that he's going to do it himself. Right? So in chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike all the firstborn." Chapter 12, verse 29 records, At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So unlike in the previous plagues, which could be interpreted by some as simply just natural disasters, they had some kind of justification for what was going on. Here, there is no question that God is doing this. He is the one targeting the firstborn. 
Here's a second observation. Notice how God is not discriminating between persons. He's not discriminating between persons. The approaching death will touch every family in Egypt, regardless if you're high-born or low-born, if you're the son of Pharaoh or you're the son of a slave girl. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't even matter if you're a man or a beast. Did you notice in chapter 11, verse 5, the Lord says that he will even strike all the firstborn of the cattle. And so what this demonstrates, friends, is how the corruption of sin that was unleashed on God's good earth, sin has pervaded the entirety of creation. There is not a single aspect of creation unaffected by the fall. And so the great I am, the final judge and arbiter of all things, has every right to exact judgment on all mankind and on all the beasts of the field. No one is exempt here. We all fall short of the glory of God. But at the same time, Though God doesn't discriminate between persons, he does make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And I know, hearing that, that might sound like I'm just speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Sounds like a contradiction, so, so let me try to explain how he doesn't discriminate, but he does make a distinction. First, look with me at verse 6, and let's look at this distinction. Verse 6 of chapter 11, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so the implication in that verse is that not a single firstborn among Israel is going to die that night. It'll be a silent night in the Israelite neighborhood while a great cry of agony is going to ring throughout the streets of Egypt. That's the distinction that the Lord is making. But think about this. When the text says that Yahweh is going to pass through the entire land of Egypt, you do realize that means he is passing through Egyptian and Israelite villages. Because the Israelites at this time are living in the land of Egypt. This is an aspect of the story that we must not overlook. I think we tend to see this plague as God's way of punishing Egypt on Israel's behalf. We only picture him visiting each of the Egyptian homes with wrath and punishment. But look with me at chapter 12, verse 23. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We're going to be looking at this more in the next point, but this is an important point to make here. So look in chapter 12, verse 23, and notice it says, for Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he, and this is, again, this is Moses informing the Israelites, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door. That means he's at the door of the Israelite home, but he will pass over and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you, you being the Israelites. So we're going to talk about the blood and the lamb more in our next point, but what I want to note here is how that destroyer, which is probably referring to an angel of the Lord, that destroyer will visit every Jewish home as well that evening. And will strike their firstborn if the Lord does not prevent it. 
if the Lord does not let judgment pass over that Israelite home. So that's why I'm saying the Lord didn't discriminate between Egyptian and Jew. He visited every Jewish home that night. He did not exempt them. He did not overlook their sin. No, he treated their sin just as deserving as judgment, as the sin of an Egyptian. So God did not give the Israelites a way to avoid judgment, but he did offer a way to survive it. He made a way for their wickedness to be judged and yet somehow to spare their firstborn. And it had nothing to do with the piety or the goodness of the people inside those Israelite homes. It had everything to do with the shed blood of a lamb painted on the outside of those homes. If an Israelite family had faith and trusted in God's means of salvation, if their entire household would huddle under the safety of the blood, then they would survive that night. That was the distinction being made without any compromise to God's justice. But I know many people will still have a hard time understanding why God would be targeting the firstborn of every family in the first place. Now, for me, as a second child, never really bothered me. I'm like, I'm good. But I can understand why it seems rather arbitrary. Because if everyone is a guilty sinner, then why not just strike down everyone in the household, right? Why are you targeting only firstborn sons? And it actually is clarified later for us in chapter 13, verse 13, that we are specifically talking about firstborn sons. So some of you firstborn daughters, you're like, oh, that's a relief as well. But still, we need to work through this. How do we understand this? Why firstborn sons? Well, on one hand, this is a just retribution for Pharaoh's attack on Israel's sons back in chapter 1. Remember when we studied chapter 1? He set up a wicked policy to cull the Jewish population by throwing all of their newborn sons into the Nile. And so here they are essentially reaping what they sowed. But the emphasis on firstborn sons really has to be understood in the cultural context of those days. You have to understand that in biblical times, the firstborn son received the vast majority of the family's wealth and was responsible to take charge of the entire household when the father died. These were agrarian cultures that typically had large families. And so if all of the children received an equal share of the inheritance, then the family's status as a whole would go down. So that's why practically everything was given to the firstborn son. And he was the one responsible for preserving the family's name and the family's wealth. Now, if that practice bothers you as a modern person in the 21st century, well, let me just be clear here that the Bible is not prescribing this practice per se. It's just describing. It's describing a cultural practice in those times. In that culture, the firstborn son was the head of the family. That's just a fact in that culture. So the family's name, their property, their wealth, their hope and future all rested on him, the firstborn. So 
When God lays claim on their firstborn sons, he's essentially saying to everyone, I lay claim on you and your entire household. I lay claim on your hope and your future, on your all in all. Scripture teaches that because of our sin and disobedience, we have forfeited our all in all. We are all indebted to God. And so to lay claim on the firstborn sons is a way of saying that he lays claim on us all, on our very lives, on our very future, our very hope. And this makes sense of what we read later on in chapter 13. If you just turn there to verses 12 to 13, here God is reiterating his claim on the firstborn of every womb. So chapter 13, verse 12, you shall set apart to Yahweh all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So, all the firstborn, we're told, are to be set apart to the Lord. That is, they are to be sacrificed to him. But we see here a provision. God does make a way to redeem a firstborn donkey and especially to redeem your firstborn son. And so that's what redemption means in a biblical sense. It's to rescue someone from a deserved death. And so this became an ongoing practice for generations to come. Just look further at Verse 14, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? That is, well, daddy, why are you slaying that lamb? Why are you killing it? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 15, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, for this reason, this is why we practice this, son, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Okay, so let me just sum this up for us. The background to the Passover is an approaching death, a death that we all deserve, but represented here by the death of the firstborn. And laying claim on firstborn sons, God is laying claim on our lives, and he has every right and all the might to collect on our debt. Friends, this is sobering news. This is bad news. But the good news is that there is a way of redemption that we see here. We can be redeemed just like that donkey. We can be redeemed just like that firstborn son of Israel. And so this leads to our second point, and it leads to really the significance of the Passover. If I were to put it in a phrase, the significance of the Passover would be this. It would be the need for a bloody substitute. The need for a bloody substitute. That's what the Passover meal signifies. That's the underlying message. All ritual meals have an underlying message. A Thanksgiving meal traditionally includes a cornucopia, which 
signifies gratitude. Gratitude for the bounty in harvest or just the bounty in our lives in general. For those who celebrate Lunar New Year, the ritual meal typically involves serving noodles, which signify long life, and eating fish, which in Chinese sounds like the word for abundance. Passover, or Passover, involves serving a roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. And they all carry deep significance. If we look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, this section here, it, we're, we're given instructions for how to prepare that Passover meal. I won't read it uh, in, in its uh, totality. I'll just kind of touch on these verses. First, each family is to begin preparation on the 10th day of the month of Abib. Uh, Abib is the Jewish month that, according to our calendar, would start in late March into early April. So we are told that this month, the month of Abib, will now, from this point on, be the start of a new year for Israel. God is now doing something new here. He is beginning a new creation, if you will. Next, you are to select the right lamb. It has to be a one-year-old male lamb. It has to be without blemish, without any defect, because God deserves our best. And then, after you select the right lamb, you have to identify with that lamb. So every family chooses their own lamb. If the family, we're told, is too small, they can, it's too small enough to be able to finish an entire lamb, they can join with a neighboring family. But the whole general idea is that this lamb is now to become a part of the family. Did you notice that you're supposed to keep it with you for four whole days? I mean, why not just pick a lamb on the very day, the 14th day, when you're going to kill it and eat it, right? Like, why do you have to do this four days earlier on the 10th day? It's partly because you start to identify with this little lamb over the course of just those few days. I'm sure the kids in the home probably gave it a name. They were probably playing with the lamb. It's now your lamb, which, of course, makes it that much harder but also that much more significant when you slay it and you roast it at twilight, that is a part of you being killed. You've identified with this lamb. It's a part of you being slain. And then you are to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts of your home. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And you and your family will eat the entire roasted lamb with bitter herbs, which probably recall for them their bitter servitude. And you are to eat it with unleavened bread, which doesn't take very long to prepare. And that's the whole point because it symbolizes the haste, the urgency of this entire escape. And so this haste is also demonstrated by the way that they are to dress with belt fastened, with sandals on their feet and staff in their hand, ready to go. And then in verses 14 all the way to verse 20, it goes on to give us instructions for how to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Essentially, uh, this is a feast that goes on for the following seven days after the Passover. And they, during this seven days, this week, they are to cleanse their homes of any leaven, uh, and they are only to eat unleavened bread. You have to understand that in Scripture, leaven was often used as a symbol of impurity. 
So just like how, just like leaven, a little bit of impurity mixed into the covenant community will just continue to spread until it affects the entire covenant community. That's the metaphor. And so by removing all of the leaven, they are to remove impurity from among them. So these two events here, we have the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They are distinct events, but they are often just spoken of all together because one flows right on into the other. But the emphasis in both these events, both these um, uh, meals, is on remembrance. That's the emphasis on remembering. Let me just read to you from chapter 12, verse 14. It says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You got to remember something on this day. And you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so the whole idea is that the Jews were now to partake in this ritual meal as a way to remind themselves of their need for that lamb, their need for that bloody substitute. This idea of a bloody substitute is woven deeply into the story of Israel. This is not a new concept here. It is part of their tradition that has actually stretched much further back than just the Exodus, all the way into the first book of the Bible. The first time this motif of a, of a bloody substitute shows up in the Bible is really at the end of Genesis chapter 3. This is after Adam and Eve have been judged and they've been condemned for their disobedience to God. He exiles them out of the garden, never to return again. But as they are on their way out, the text says this, Genesis 3:21, And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Friends, that garment of skin that covered Adam and Eve's shame, it came from an animal that I'm pretty sure didn't give it up voluntarily. God had to kill to sacrifice that animal in their place. Blood was shed, and it means God's judgment passed over them because a bloody substitute was covering their sin and shame. Do you see that? Well, the next occurrence would be later on in Genesis in chapter 22, where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his firstborn to the Lord. He doesn't fully understand, but Abraham obeys. He brings Isaac up the mountain, and he's about to sink the knife into his son when the Lord stops him, tells them this is a test, and then provides a ram caught in a thicket, and Abraham sacrifices the ram instead of his son. There God, again, provides a bloody substitute, and his judgment passes over his people. And then in Exodus, remember back in chapter 4, in verses 24 to 26, the Lord passes over Moses himself and spares him from death. And it also involved a bloody substitute. This time it was his son's foreskin. His failure to circumcise his son had incurred God's judgment. So by the time 
that you now reach Exodus chapter 12, this pattern has already been set in the scriptures. God's judgment approaches every family in the land of Egypt, Egyptian and Jew alike. They are all sinners deserving of death. But the Lord will spare those who take refuge under the blood of a substitute. Death will pass right over if death was already visited on the lamb whose blood covers their doorway. Those are the gracious acts of God being replayed and relived every single time the ritual meal of the Passover is taken. So imagine with me a family sitting down to eat the Passover meal. When they bite into those bitter herbs, they're reminded of the bitterness that sin has brought into their lives. And when they break off a piece of unleavened bread, they are reminded of the urgency of the moment that they are sinners deserving of death and that God's judgment is at hand. But when they serve that sacrificial lamb, everyone at the table is reminded of the blood that's staining their doorway. They are reminded of their salvation. I, I, I like to picture the firstborn son sitting there at the table, staring with eyes wide open at the dead lamb, thinking to himself, that could have been me. That should have been me. The fact is, everyone around that table should have died, but they were spared because of a bloody substitute. No matter how many generations passed, no matter how many years went by, this ritual meal of the Passover connected families across the span of time with that original tribe of Israel that experienced the Exodus firsthand. This ritual meal drew families into the larger story of God's covenantal faithfulness to his people and how he, by his strong hand, rescued and redeemed his people by means of a bloody substitute. But now, of course, the question is, if this ritual meal is so significant in Scripture, if God's people, as we are told in chapter 12, verse 14, are to keep this feast throughout your generations as a statute forever, well then, why don't we, as Christians, observe the Passover? How come we don't eat this meal anymore? Well, friends, it's because this meal was never meant to be final. It was meant to point to something else. It was really meant to point to another meal, one that took place a thousand years later in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem between a rabbi and 11 of his disciples. The Passover is the first supper that finds its fulfillment in the last supper. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 15. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was eating the ritual Passover meal with his disciples. Bitter herbs were probably served. There was definitely unleavened bread. And I'm sure there was a roasted lamb 
But the whole point is that the focus was not on that lamb on the table. The focus was on the lamb of God, the one standing who took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just like the Passover lamb, Jesus gave himself as a bloody substitute. He gave his body to be bruised and battered. He gave his body to be nailed and pierced for his disciples and for all, all throughout the generations who would trust in him. And then Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's referring, of course, to the wine-red blood of the lamb that was poured out and painted on each doorway in the Exodus, protecting the occupants in that home. And in the same way, Jesus poured out his red blood on the cross, and it's his blood, his blood that covers us. So friends, you have to come to grips with this reality. The wrath of God The just judgment of God is bearing down on each and every one of us. Because of our sins, death approaches. There is a plague of judgment coming to your doorstep. And the gospel says that our only recourse, our only remedy, our only rescue is to be covered by the blood of the true Passover lamb. Judgment rested on him so that it could pass over others. And what you have to do, friend, what you need to do is to flee to Christ and hide in him. Just like on the night of the first supper, as long as you hid inside a home that had the blood of a substitute painted over it, as long as you just stayed there, you would be safe. But if you, you tried to venture out into the streets and to bank on the hope that you were somehow devout enough in your own faith to stand on your own, I'm sorry, but you are in grave danger. You are a goner. If you want to live, if you want to be redeemed, if you want to be saved, it's not about whether you've lived a good enough life. It's not about whether you deserve to be passed over. No, you don't. You deserve judgment to rest right on you but it can pass you over if you hide yourself in Christ. It's about being covered by his blood and righteousness. That, my friends, is how you are saved. The good news that was forecasted in the first supper is fulfilled in the last supper, which, my friends, is now remembered in the Lord's Supper. Church, the reason we regularly partake of a ritual communion meal ourselves is because we're part of a larger family and part of a larger story. Whenever we partake of the communion table, when we eat of the bread and drink the cup, we are drawn into the gospel story of God's redeeming love and salvation by means of substitution. 
were there with the Israelites, huddled in their homes under a bloodstained door. We are there with the disciples, huddled in the upper room, eating the Passover. And we are there with Christ on the cross, identifying with him in his death. That's what happens when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. And that's why we in our church take the Lord's Supper very seriously. It's a ritual meal, but not a routine meal. I think many of us probably need to repent of a cavalier, indifferent attitude towards the supper. We need to stop treating it like just a formality and to start seeing how this ritual meal connects us with Christ and with his church throughout all the centuries. When we, I really wished this sermon was last Sunday. But, you know, we're just going to have to wait until next month on the first Sunday of the month. And when we take that meal together, let's eat and drink to the family of God and the story of his salvation. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the way it encourages us to know that there is hope and rescue available in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.